1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull working somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If I had to sum up this whole market in one word, the word would be challenging. I say that even on a day when the Dow gained 72 points, that's going to be climbed 0.17%. NASDAQ essentially flat. Challenging, as in stocks can be upright from the get-go. Then we give up the ghost. Then the averages come roaring back. Except we do it with fewer stocks rally. And many names left behind. Welcome to the post-highs market where there are simply too many headwinds swirling from rising raw costs, as we're going to hear from United Technologies later tonight, to the West Wing revolving door to failed takeovers and suddenly unhelpful government intervention. But mixed in with all these negatives is the one certainty of this era. The earnings are fabulous, people. We have a seemingly endless stream of upside surprises, and that's what's keeping this market afloat. So it's the earnings you need to keep your eye on as we go over next week's game plan on Monday night oracle reports after the close this is an incredibly cheap stock it's got a strong old school software business and a cloud business that's getting stronger i think if oracle can boost its growth rate by even a couple percentage points the stock can take off in the meantime the risk reward is pretty good even when oracle's disappointed in the past it barely gets hit because bargain hunters can't resist it unfortunately it's disappointed far too often but If we get an upside surprise, Oracle could have the kind of run that drove Cisco from the low 30s to the mid 40s in no time flat. On Tuesday, we hear from two terrific growth stories. Children's Place comes in the morning. We pulled up with CEO Jane Elfers earlier this year, and what can I say? She's defying the Moribund Mall with products that need to be tried on. At the same time, she's covered the firm's flank with a buy online, pick up in the store, or free shipping policy. Children's Place is perennially expensive. So, uh, the stock, not the store. So I think that being down 5% this year could be a bargain. After the close... Oh, one of my absolute favorites, FedEx. These guys have been crushing the competition at United Parcel, but skittish sellers are more worried about the phantom of Amazon, even as it's it's such a small percentage of FedEx traffic. They confirmed that in the last conference call. We know this stock can be highly erratic and often trades lower in response to what, upon further review, turns out to be positive numbers. So I recommend buying half before and half after, but by all means do some buying. General Mills reports Wednesday, and and I've been championing this one candidly, uh, admittedly to no avail, for its Blue Buffalo Pet Products acquisition. Many think they're overpaying, but I like the deal, not just because of the love Mr. NVIDIA shows for the product. Buying Blue Buffalo helps diversify General Mills away from some mighty stale supermarket aisles. We like the humanization of pet story here in Cray America, Whether we're talking about Zoetis... Yeah, remember the off of Pfizer, so good. Or the red-hot IDEX Labs. Have you looked at that stock? And the narrative now encompasses... General Mills. After the close, we hear from another solid retailer that's come on strong of late. Philadelphia's own Five Below. The liquidation of Toys R Us is a reminder that retail is very fickle. But Five Below sells toys for kids, among a host of other goodies like candy, blankets, stylish, inexpensive clothing. It's a winning formula. Might be worth a pickup. Thursday is the most important earnings day of the week, and it could present some real opportunities. Why don't we start with Darden, the parent of Olive Garden, Okay. Uh, which has done an amazing job of providing good food for low prices. Now, not everyone loves it. My wife, for instance, insists on saying we own an olive grove in Italy because an olive garden sounds too much like Darden's chain. I call foul since my daughter and I love going there for lunch. When you see the numbers, I bet you'll agree that I'm right and Lisa is wrong. Doesn't watch the show, I'm A-OK. Don't worry about a thing. We've warmed up to ConAgra after interviewing new CEO Sean Conley earlier this year. ConAgra is a supermarket underdog that's transformed itself from an admittedly dated group of pantry brands to a favorite set of meals and treats loved by millennials that uses better packaging, not more all that plastic, you know, like Gillette. I like the risk-reward going into the quarter of ConAgra, or CAG, as I like to call it. When Accenture reports, and by the way, when you type in Accenture symbol, A-C-N, it always spells checks as C-A-N, so don't be confused. I bet Wall Street will once again be shocked, shocked that this information technology expert can deliver such great numbers. The only thing surprising to me is how people don't see this coming. Accenture helps companies get digitized, and it has an amazing track record. I bet this time will be no different. Then after the close, we get numbers from three of the most controversial stocks out there right now. we get Nike. We get Mike Grum, We get KB Holmes. Nike's charged with controversy, not just over earnings, but over the sudden departure of one of my favorite execs, Trevor Edwards, the Nike brand's president, who so often told fabulous tales of success each quarter on the conference call. He's been the keeper of the Jordans and a friend of personalization and superior athletic performance. He will be missed, even as I'm expecting Nike to deliver a decent quarter. I expect Micron will be a blowout. We just heard from one of their huge customers, HP Inc., and CEO Dion Weissler confirmed that prices for DRAMs, one of Micron's two key products, remain much firmer than they anticipated, even last fall. The stock's had a fantastic run of late, but that's usually how Micron works before a terrific quarter. That stock was just rampant today. Again, that's grist. Remember, we just got back from Silicon Valley, where many tech gurus are shocked, again, that DRAM pricing is refusing to go down. Perhaps they should listen to the incredibly eloquent CEO of Applied Materials, Gary Dickerson, who knows that the semiconductor manufacturing equipment that he his company is, makes is in short supply. And that's very positive. It means no one can suddenly flood the market with new DRAMs. KB Homes controversial, because when I loved it in the low teens, Wall Street loathed it. Since then, the stock has doubled, and now analysts adore it. That makes me nervous about this national home builder with the best properties in the hottest state in the union, California. Finally, on Friday, we get two macro numbers that might break the logjam that's keeping the yield in the 10-year treasury above 2.8%. I'm talking about the durable goods and the new home sales. I think durable goods could be okay, given the strength of the material stocks. But I bet new home sales will be weaker, weaker than some expected. Something that could cause rates to tick down closer to 2.7. If that happens, the market will breathe a sigh of relief, probably ramp. So here's the bottom line. We've got some terrific trading opportunities next week, all with the buyers to the upside. But don't forget that the thicket of national news, mostly emanating from the White House, has not been good, not been good for stocks lately. Hopefully, my old friend Larry Kudlow can calm things down a bit starting next week. However, We can no longer rely on Washington to give us a positive backdrop, which is precisely what makes this market so challenging compared to last year. May we go to Paul in Pennsylvania. Paul! Hey, Jim, how are you? Paul, I I am fine. How about you? Oh, I'm doing fine. I want to wish you from down here in Philadelphia— a great booyah, and Eagles go for number two. Well, I got to tell you, I was a little surprised I had to let Vinnie Carey go for that, uh, but the salary cap issues do matter. What's going on? Okay, Jim. My stock is
2: U.S. Concrete, (USCR), and I have some worries about it, but I've also you got some hope for it. And you said to be patient when you recommended it back
1: in December at about 83 to $86. Well, look, I've been, I've been behind it for a long time, and what I chose not to do is tell people to buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. And it is down at the bottom end of the range, and I believe in U.S. Concrete. I think it's a fine company. We need to go to Eric in Massachusetts. Eric!
2: Booyah, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Uh, two, two years ago, I bought shares at T-Mobile at $32 per share nearly doubled my investment. Which However, one? T-Mobile stock has remained stagnant over the past year. Do you think we'll finally see T-Mobile stock break out of this consolidation phase? You know,
1: I know it's it's a harsh verdict to call it static. I, it really hasn't done that much. But you know what? I've been eyeing this one for Plus.com for the club. And I think that John Leisure, whom I just tweeted a few minutes ago, is going to report a good quarter. And I think T-Mobile is a straight out. Buy, 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 Probably buy, buy. one of the best stocks mentioned on the show. All right, be ready for plenty of opportunities next week with a bias to the upside, particularly FedEx, Darden, ConAgra, Accenture. Wow, what can I say? That's not bad. Okay, uh, the, but remember, don't rely on Washington for a positive backdrop anymore. Don't be lazy about that. It, it, it's not presidential strong buy time anymore. Oh, right, man, buddy, tonight, how could Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum impact a stock like? United Technologies. Hey, you know what? Let's ask the CEO. Then it's a global media behemoth that's up more than 65% so far this year. Netflix is crushing it, and it's become the content king. Should you consider streaming the stock? You don't want to miss that piece. And my sit-down with a tech company that's winning business from the likes of 23andMe to Domino's to one of the largest airlines in the world, all sophisticated clients. Is it time to consider New Relic? Do with a big multinational industrial company in this environment where everyone's suddenly fretting about a possible trade war. Take United Technologies, the maker of elevators, aerospace components, climate control equipment, and security systems. While the global economy is on fire and management has floated the idea of breaking up the company to unlock value, the company's going to be hit directly by the president's new steel tariffs, and it's an obvious target for retaliation if our trading partners decide to go tit for tat. That's why this stock is down nearly 8% from its highs, just by blowing out the numbers. But if you think these worries are overblown, we could be looking at a nice buying opportunity. So which is it? Earlier today, I got a chance to check in with Greg Hayes, the forthcoming chairman and CEO of United Technologies. Take a look. Greg, it's good to see you, and I understand the analyst day went very well. Just give me a 30,000-foot overview of the main points that you made.
0: Hey Jim, it's good to, good to see you as well. So today we hosted the, uh, our annual investor meeting. We had about 75 of our key institutional investors as well as some sell side folks. Uh, and we actually highlighted each of the four businesses, uh, Pratt, our aerospace systems, our climate business, and uh, the Otis business, and just really reiterated what the goals are for the next three years financially as well as the investments that we're making in innovation.
1: Now, did you uh, stress some of the longer-term views, uh, urbanization, middle class, uh, long-term demand for aerospace?
0: Yeah, it's actually the part that I covered in my intro this morning. Um, If you think about the big macro forces driving the world economy, that is urbanization, that's the growth of the middle class, that's the growth in revenue passenger miles for air traffic. All of those trends are the things that are going to benefit our business over the next five, 10, or 15 years. And if you think about aerospace specifically, it's about 29,000 aircraft flying today in the world, commercial aircraft. By 2030, so 12 years from now, that number will be 47,000. And in those next 12 years, you'll have to produce about 30,000 new aircraft in order to meet the demand. That's a huge number of aircraft. So it's more that we're going to build more in the next 12 years than we've built in the last 50 years. So a huge ramp. Uh, but again, it's really why. We're in the commercial aerospace business to take advantage of that big macro trend.
1: Now, one of the things I was thinking of you in the last week because of this Larry Kudlow, my old friend from Kudlow and Kramer, versus the hardliners who won tariffs. And I think that so much of what you do, uh, you're a dominant player in China for our country, whether it be uh, Otis, where you really have just made your name. Uh, Aircraft, we know that the Chinese need so many. at what point do, are you concerned more about politics than you are demand, which is incredibly strong?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think that's, that, that is the, a concern, an overriding concern that we have today, is we don't want to see a trade war with China. Um, again, with it, we import a lot from China, they import a lot of aerospace parts from us, and specifically from Boeing. As you know, it's, Boeing is the biggest customer that we have on the uh, aerospace system side. Uh, a trade war, nobody wins. And I think, you know, the fear is if, if we get into this tit for tat on tariffs, uh, that's going to be a problem. So hopefully um, the Chinese will react as they have so far, which is with some pause. And we're not going to go down a bad path here, but it is a concern.
1: Now, I know that you did discuss uh, the Worries about commodity costs because you're a gigantic buyer of the metals that the president is putting tariffs on But at the same time this is probably the best I've ever seen all three Well, I guess we can call them four because the way you divide airspace the the best demand I've ever seen so how do you balance this?
0: Well if you think about you know the metals right so we buy uh, five or six hundred thousand tons of steel a year uh... we buy three million pounds of aluminum but most of that is actually bought outside of the u.s. only a third of the metals are actually made or bought here in the u.s. and so as we think about the impact to the to the business in the short term it's not going to be significant you know it, it'll it may cost us a couple three pennies this year um, and some of that you'll recover through pricing um, but it's a you know it's it's one of those worries out there again if you start with tariffs on steel and aluminum where do you go next
1: Right. I think that we all have to recognize that uh, lots of companies are getting shaved two or three points. You've got something going uh, that I think people don't understand, Great, People feel that all engines are the same. Oh, one aircraft engine is the same as another aircraft <laughs> engine. That is not the case, right? Because of engineering, you have changed the game.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's beyond just engineering. It's innovation, Jim. If you think about what Pratt has done with this geared turbofan that we talk so much about, You know, it's a $10 billion investment that we made in engineering and development over the last 12 years. And fundamentally, it changes the game in commercial aerospace, and you and I have talked about this. I mean, the the engine is about 16% more fuel efficient than the engine it replaces. It's got about 75% lower noise signature, and it's got about a 50% reduction in emissions. So if you think about it, I mean, each one of the engines that typically gets introduced, you'll have a two or three point increase in efficiency. This is 16 points. And frankly, despite some of the teething issues that have been out there, the customers love the engine.
1: All right. Now, you did uh, see these uh, uh, talk to a lot of your investors. How many of them feel that climate controls, aerospace, uh, it, they don't necessarily uh, go with elevators? Did, how many people said, you know what, this is the time, uh, Greg, I know some of the shareholders are, are, are really agitating for this. And how many just feel like this is a great synergy?
0: Well, I think you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because we asked that question, and I heard it from a lot of investors today. Some of them say, absolutely, you need to break the company up because elevators and air conditioning have nothing to do with jet engines. Some of the other uh, investors who have been around have a, perhaps a longer-term perspective, understand the benefits and the synergies that you have for having a large company together. You know, best-in-class SGNA at around 10%. Uh, none of the industrial peers have that. And we have it because of the scale of, of the business. And so obviously you lose some of that if, if you break it up. But it's still something we need to, we need to think through, we need to go through the process. And uh, we, I think we owe investors an answer by the end of the year.
1: Well, Greg, I'm you to because I know that uh, a lot of the CEOs, including you, say, look, we gotta have the board think about it. I was looking at your board. You're uniquely set up to make a decision about whether this is right. I've, know, I've known Fred Reynolds for years. He's on the boards of Mondelēz and Hess. Those are two companies that have faced exactly yeah. these issues. Ellen Coleman, few people have understood the the need or not need to split things up. And then, you know, I've known Brian Rogers since the 80s. I, I think he's one of the greatest and best of all time if I want to know whether I should break up I think he would be probably the first person I would call would the valuation go up so is your board are those people going to be sitting down with you and saying you know what we think that this would be best for stakeholders this best for shareholders because this board is uniquely but really uh, if you task them with it don't come up with the right answer
0: no look Jim we are blessed to have a great board of directors I think you, know, you mentioned just a few people uh, but you've got JP Garnier, who's had a career at Glaxo. You have Terry McGraw from McGraw Hill Publishing. You've got a, just a, a great, great group of people that have a keen understanding of the investors and of the business. Um, I would tell you though, the first thing the board, and I've told them we had our board meeting here just two days ago, i said, the first thing we need to do is close on Rockwell Collins. And so we'll do that in the next two, three months here. Uh, and then once we've closed on Rockwell, once we've started the integration, I told the board we'd go through a process by the end of the year to make a decision. And I would tell you, having a Brian Rogers on the board who has been, been at T. Rowe forever, uh, having Ellen who go, went through this process uh, while she was at DuPont, having Fred Reynolds who's been through this process a number of times as a board member, those are invaluable insights. and so. It's not like we need to go outside and ask a lot of questions because I think the board truly understands what's important to investors and the long-term stakeholders in the business.
1: All right. Well, look, congratulations on, uh, on just a great run since you've come in, done so much right. I personally just think that they're both good options, staying with and break it up, but I'm sure you'll make the right decision. Greg Hayes, chairman and CEO of United Technologies. Uh, Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. Take care. Street doesn't always know what it wants. Sometimes even the smartest portfolio managers and analysts and commentators have a very hard time recognizing a good idea, even when it smacks them right in the face. And that's especially true when it comes to growth stocks. Consider the incredible case of Netflix. Here's a longtime Kramer fave that's made you a fortune. Netflix is the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 for 2018. It's up 66% year-to-date. And the darn thing has rallied more than 1,000% over the past five years. But after spending a week in Silicon Valley, I realized something kind of crazy. Right now, the thing the experts love most about Netflix is its massive library of original content. Uh, Yet, not that long ago, this was the single most hated part of the story. For years, the experts absolutely loathed the idea that this company was spending so much money uh, developing its own programming. If you listen to the conventional wisdom, you, you would have thought Netflix was pretty much burning the money. Some even said all this original content would ultimately be the company's downfall. Even the bulls assumed that these costs were Netflix's Achilles heel. And now it's one of the company's biggest selling points. Yeah, one of the biggest selling points. These days, we're told that Netflix's content library is what will defend the business from its competitors. Far from being the company's greatest weakness, it's universally acknowledged as its greatest strength. Why do I bring this up? It's not that I want to take a victory lap and point out how I was right and the bears were wrong. Netflix is just an example of a larger trend. Wall Street loves growth, but lots of professionals hate it when companies spend money in order to get growth. So they try to scare you away from the stocks of great companies with amazing prospects just because those companies are investing in their future. I don't want you to be frightened away from the next Netflix, which is why we need to go over right now what happened here because this story illustrates a very important point for the future. These days we all accept that when Netflix spends 7.5 to 8 billion dollars on non-sports content this year more than Viacom or CBS, it's a good investment. Good Because this program is what fuels the company's explosive subscriber growth. And new subscribers are the magic ingredient that sends this stock to new highs. But it wasn't always like this. If you look back to 2013 and 2014 when Netflix was just starting the most recent leg of its fabulous long-term rally, there were a ton of analysts who thought the company was making a horrible mistake. Consider some of these notes. In January 2013, right after Netflix reported a terrific quarter, Rich Tula of Albert Frieden Company recommended selling the stock, arguing that, and I quote, Netflix bull story has transitioned from a questionable takeover story to an untenable content library. Growth, lia- I'm sorry, content liability growth story, end quote. Throughout the year, he kept emphasizing the same thing, calling the company's content liabilities a ticking clock, like they were some kind of time bomb. Remember, at this point, House of Cards and Oranges the New Black had already made a huge splash, so of course the stock kept surging. Finally, by the end of the year, Tula threw in the towel and discontinued coverage. Or how about Brian Fitzgerald at Jeffries, who downgraded Netflix in April 2013, when the stock was around 30 bucks, mostly because of valuation concerns. If you took his advice, you missed out on a 10-bagger. But he, he kept flogging his sell call. And by July 2014, he was citing the company's increased content spending as a reason to be wary. Fitzgerald was worried that all of these investments would hurt Netflix's margins, which was missing the point entirely, as the stock was a revenue growth story back then. By October 2014, he threw in the towel, upgrading Netflix to a hold, which was less wrong. But throughout his whole run, Jeff- run—Jeffrey's has rated Netflix either a sell or a hold because of these very spending worries. Finally, there's the worst offender of them all, and then probably the nicest guy. is a fellow by the name of Michael Pachter from Wedbush. This is the second time I've had to bring this up. I'm sorry, Michael, but, I mean, honestly, you've been a permit barrel on Netflix for more than six years. He's had an underperformed radio on this thing since November. November of 2011. Michael, hold your ears. Every- Every step of the way, Pactors pointed to the company's ever-rising content costs as the major reason to avoid this talk. Whenever Netflix would blow away the numbers, he'd stress that content concerns remain, or the company's hampered by content costs. Even as recently as last October, he published a note titled, Prices Go Up As Content Costs Climb, reiterating underperform, raising price targets to 88 yeah, you, you you got you heard eighty eight dollars as Netflix climbed from hundred dollars to three hundred dollars over the years. Pactor has grudgingly raised his price target from fifty to the 90s he only took it to 110 after the latest fabulous quarter. Open-minded fella. In his last note, headlined, Your Cash Ain't Nothing But Trash, Pactor says he expects Netflix to keep burning cash to fund co- content acquisition. Never mind that the company blew away the subscriber growth forecast. He just can't get over the fact that Netflix keeps spending more and more money on content to fuel that growth. I'll give Pactor points for being consistent. He is maniacally focused on his discounted cash flow model. He's not going to let some silly thing like the stock price change his opinion. But that kind of an analysis simply doesn't work for a turbocharged growth stock. That analysis just doesn't work. What these skeptics have been missing all along is that Netflix is trying to take over the world. It's one of the few services out there that it genuinely must have. I mean, can you live without it? I can't. And the homegrown content is the reason why. I love their stuff. That's how these guys can gradually raise prices without upsetting their customers. Unlike television networks, Netflix knows exactly what you want. They know what you like better than you do. So so they've been very good at creating content that causes more people to subscribe, especially foreign language content that's been driving the company's strength overseas. I watch titles. I never have time for titles except for these guys' stuff. Plus, many of the best minds in the industry want to work for Netflix. Netflix. Because an online streaming service that can give you a lot more creative freedom than cable TV or a film studio, studio is a win for directors. When Netflix spent $90 million on Bright that big Will Smith fantasy cop movie, a lot of people acted as though the company was spending money like a drunken sailor, especially once the film came out and the reviews were just, they were nightmarish, horrible. Yet Bright has been a huge success for Netflix, driving lots of new signups in its first month. It became one of their most viewed original titles ever. Look, it's a virtuous cycle we got going here with Netflix. Netflix spends heavily on content, that content causes more people to subscribe, the company then plows that money back into the new programming and so on. That's been the model for years and years and it obviously works. However, lately, Netflix has started catching downgrades again. The first one since 2016, mostly because of valuation concerns in the wake of the stock's incredible run. But you also hear those same worries about content costs being echoed again. After Netflix shot the lights out with its earnings report in late January, Matthew Harrigan from Buckingham downgraded the stock to neutral because of cash burn worries and the stock's valuation. Then we got another downgrade last week from the well-respected Scott DeWitt over, uh, over at evil. Uh, although this was really more of a valuation call, which I get. He, he's been right. My view, betting against Netflix has been a huge mistake all along. But given how much this stock has run, if you don't already own it, I suggest waiting for a pullback before you do Any buying, simply because I hate to chase. Bottom line, though, of all the things that can derail a spectacular growth story like Netflix, excessive spending is pretty low on the list, despite all the hand-wringing about it. As it turns out, the boogeyman, the bears, used used to frighten you for years out of the stock, all the money Netflix was throwing at original programming, is now a reason to own the stock. And it doesn't get any clearer than that. I'm going to Dave in Illinois. Dave!
2: Dr. Kramer, hey, I want to thank you and your staff for important and informative interviews from Silicon Valley earlier this week and also early into your 14th season of Mad Money.
1: Well, there we go, man. We're trying to do it. uh, Thank you very much, Dave. And yeah, Out West was just really fabulous. It was fabulous. How can I help?
2: You are getting it done. Jim, I want your take on net neutrality. Recently, a group of some 20 states' attorneys general filed a petition in federal appeals court to challenge the FCC's recent repeal of legislation requiring Internet service providers to operate Internet traffic neutrally. So, Jim, your take on the balance? Well, look, I've been,
1: I, I, my travel trust. I've been telling club members it's been a tough story. Uh, that it's still right to own Comcast because the stock's at thirty-five. This is the most I've seen it down from its high in a long time. A lot of that self-inflicted, I think, because of what they want to do uh, with with these properties with Fox. But I say you still own it. I'm not worried about the attorney generals. And at thirty-five, I'm getting very close to telling people who are actioners uh, plus.com club members that you got to go back to the well. All right, don't let the naysayers scare you. Own Netflix. It's still a spectacular growth story. Watch more, Mad Money at, including my exclusive, with New Relic. The company's up 30% year-to-date. But could the stock continue to move higher? I'm going to talk to the CEO. He's a bright guy. Then, after spending nearly a week talking to some of the greatest innovators of our time on the West Coast, which company deserves to be highlighted for a moment? The answer, I'm telling you, is going to surprise you. And, of course, Rapid Fire, the special Back to New Jersey, not New York, edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. When the market gets more uncertain, we fall back on powerful long-term themes that can keep generating gains, even if all of the big picture stuff goes sideways. That's why I'm always talking about the cloud, because the cloud is one of these transformational stories that'll be with us for a long time. You just need to find the right ways to play it. Take New Relic. N-E-W-R, the cloud-based application monitoring play that helps other companies keep track of what their software is doing and how their users interact with it. The idea is that New Relic provides digital intelligence in real time, helping its clients get inside the heads of their customers. The company's in great shape and the stock has been on fire. Can it keep roaring? Yesterday, we sat down with Louis Cerny. He is the founder and CEO of New Relic. Take a look. Luke Campari, the lead. Congratulations! You're making money, and you're making money well before I thought you would.
2: Well, thank you. We're uh, we're thrilled with the progress of the business. It's been a uh, we delivered some great results results last quarter, but it's really just a step along what we think is a really exciting long term journey to change the world by helping businesses move faster with their software.
1: Well, being move faster, your revenues are moving faster than I thought too. So it's not the kind of thing where I was concerned. Oh, if they make money, maybe they're slowing down. Actually, you're accelerating.
2: Yeah, we accelerated revenues last quarter, and and I think there's a lot of factors driving this growth, the acceleration of our growth. So the first is, like, every business right now has to move faster. They have this imperative of they're competing on their software, and whoever moves the fastest, delivers the best customer experience, they're going to win. Like, think about when you you go uh, to take a flight, if you're like me, you check in on your phone. Right. The mobile. Absolutely. So, so like, you got to make sure that works. And one of the largest airlines in the world came to us last quarter and said, we need you to help us, New Relic, to help us deliver a better customer experience in the mobile app. We eliminated their errors and helped them deliver a flawless customer experience so that they can move faster with their digital experience.
1: I think it's important. I'm going to go into that because there's nothing like that handheld operation going down for people. Oh. It's frightening. It's scary. And it has to be perfect.
2: It does. I mean, I, I just ordered Domino's, what, the day before last. It, it arrived right away and, and everything, but like that digital experience was core to it, right? right? And Domino's is a long time customer where they realize this is our business. This, And, and so we have to treat this uh, incredibly seriously and New Relic helps them manage it with precision.
1: Well, you know, it's. it's I'm glad you mentioned Domino's because Patty Doyle, of course, a friend of the show, uh, now retiring. But he, I always say, is a technology company that delivers pizza. But what You're too modest, but I will say it. A lot of what makes the the ordering perfect is actually New Relic.
2: Well, we like to help businesses be at their very best with our digital initiatives. We want to take them to a place where they're confident to move faster. Take, for example, uh, Ryanair, an airline that describes themselves as um, a technology-driven airline, where they can see in real time what's going on with their customers with New Relic, too.
1: Yep. Now, one of the things I thought happened, and you've got a lot of big customers now, but this was, as we call it, the CPG quarter, the the consumer products, look at this, yeah. McCormick, Beckhausen, Beak, uh, Beak the they're the biggest. Yeah. What are you doing for these guys?
2: Well, what, what we're doing for them is we're helping them uh, move into the 21st century with their digital initiatives. It doesn't matter what sector you're in. If you're going to connect with your consumers, especially millennials and younger consumers, right, right. you have to have a digital strategy. In fact, your, your primary go-to-market strategy. And New Relic helps them succeed with that.
1: Now, uh, I want to talk about how many multiple-million-dollar customers you have now versus, say, five years
2: ago. Oh, well, I mean, geez, it's got to be just—I mean, it was— we don't have a number that we've published on multi-million dollar customers. Let's just say it's but, the fastest growing segment of our business. Well, I
1: know that you can use the 319 from, uh, from 20, third quarter 2016 to 629 third quarter 2018. You shared us that and that's, that, yes, that's a rather amazing That's That's the
2: high end of our segment, right? right? And, and, and so that is growing faster. One of the interesting things we've seen about our customers is the more customer spends with New Relic, the more likely they are to grow their spend with New Relic. So customers who invest in us and have the capacity to grow with us grow faster and that's because um, we're particularly strong in the enterprise segment. That's the fastest-growing segment of our business. It's now 52% of our business. We feel like it's going to be under, underpin the growth strategy for years to come.
1: You seem to really uh, get the people who really know technology. For instance, I mean, we talked about Fox last time and Major League Baseball uh, early mover. Yeah.
2: 23andMe, some of the smartest oh, yeah. people I've ever been They went company. with you. Uh, Absolutely. And, and you just think about what 23 and Me does is they help people really understand their genetic makeup. They do analysis of, 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 of your genes, and, and they do that through an immensely complex software system that has to work. Again, it's their whole business. And uh, I visited them last year, and I was amazed at what they were doing, but I was even more amazed at how they bake New Relic into the fabric of how they run their operations. They can't be wrong either. Well, they're, they're smart folks, and that's yeah. why they picked our awesome product. One of the things I loved about your, your recent interview,
1: uh, someone asked you about artificial intelligence, and you had to explain, that is not the term to that's the word that's thrown around, right. but you're talking about what it really means.
2: Well, absolutely. Our customers don't come in saying, what are you doing with artificial intelligence? They just want us to solve their problems. Right. And the problems right. are, they need to deliver software faster, they need to deliver a better customer experience. We think AI is an interesting opportunity for us, because we can reduce. Re- reduce. Reduce the cost to our customers of running these complex systems. Reduce the amount of manual labor involved in doing that. But I feel like it's a term that's often over-marketed. Think about what your customers' problems are and solve them. Sometimes AI is a great tool to solve customer problems.
1: Now, also, there's, I think, another misnomer, which is, well, wait a second. Are you either on-premise or off-premise? You're saying, no, it's modern versus traditional architecture. I'll explain that to people.
2: Sure. So so in in a modern architecture, again, what's driving all of this is businesses need to deploy software multiple times a day, changing their production environment multiple times a day. In the traditional environment, they might change production twice a year. So imagine something that used to change twice a year, now needs to change a bunch of times a day. Um, Modern architectures enable customers to do it, but all of a sudden there's this risk that comes in that wasn't around before. If you're changing everything all the time, New Relic helps you move faster with confidence in those modern environments. And our analysis shows that is by far the fastest segment of the market. Virtually every business is embracing modern architectures. That includes cloud computing, but it includes a lot more than cloud computing. And that's what we think of as home turf for our products. Oh, and
1: last, when we speak of home turf, I think people say, well, wait a second. I guess they're just getting—could they get killed by uh, Amazon? They're a good partner.
2: They're a great partner for us. Um, a- Andy Jassy, CEO, has been on record saying how New Relic is an example of a great partner for Amazon. We think the same of them. The reason why we're a great partner for Amazon is because New Relic customers have a common mindset That's that that... that that basically they're in the business of competing on their technology and Amazon helps them compete better on, with their technology and so does New Relic. And when Amazon and New Relic and other cloud providers like Google, like like Microsoft, like IBM, when we partner with these major cloud providers, um, we help our customers move faster with software and that helps the bottom line of their businesses.
1: Well, look, you've done a great job for customers and boy, have you done a great job for shareholders. It's New Relic's been killing it. That's New Relic's. Uh, Lou Cerny, he's the founder and CEO, of an amazing stock and is profitable. And I didn't think that was going to happen this quarter. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Jim. Yep. Always a pleasure. It is. And the lightning round is over. Are you ready? scared it over. The light round. Because my arm is over. this. Paul in Illinois. Paul. Hey. Booyah. Booyah.
2: I just want to thank you for being you, man. Thank-
1: wow. Thank you.
2: All right. My stock is Control 4, CTRL. Competitive, a great- too competitive.
1: Too competitive an area. We're going to have to say X day on that one. Let's go to Evan. And Matthews. is Evan. Kramer, how's it going? I am doing well. How about you? Good, thanks. Hey, question on Welltower. Tower, W-E-L-L. Real Estate Investment Trust, we do not need that right now. I got enough headaches. Can we go to Jimmy in Arizona? Jimmy! Hi, Jim. I really appreciate you picking me up. Quite well. Jim, Quite well. Uh, I need your direction on this. You know, you do your due diligence and try to find a stock that's good to invest in, and then it gets hit by a short activist, hedge fund activist. And I need to know if this is real or not. <laughs> but my stock is Kratos Defense. Oh, yeah, that guy saying it's a nothing drone company. I got to tell you, here's what we're going to do for you. Because I like Kratos. We're going to do, we're gonna dig into this story. Now, I can't get it done in the next five days. But we're going to find out what's going on at Kratos, okay? Because this is just, I can't just say go buy it. Because this guy's making some serious charges. Let's take another call. Let's go to Mike in Georgia, please. Mike. Dreamer, what's going on? Ah, not that much. How about you? I'm just having a
2: wonderful day
1: down here in Atlanta. I have got to get some help on this stock I have. I bought it from my
2: grandchildren. There are three of them under three years old. I'm okay. looking at run. Are you in?
1: Solar. Okay. Well, look, it's been a good solar stock, which is actually quite surprising. Uh, but I like, you know, for the age group three, I like that. My problem is, is that this stock has run a little too much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the... Lightning Round!
0: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD
1: Ameritrade. If you really want to get your head around what's working in technology, you need to do what I do. You need to go out to the West Coast and meet the executives of these marvelous companies face-to-face. That's why I go out there multiple times a year, because I think it's the best way to grasp the incredible innovations that are the lifeblood of the industry. There are just so many powerful themes at work here, and it's a lot to wrap your mind around if you don't go out there in person. You've got the cloud revolutionizing the way we do business, like with Workday. You've got big data where companies like Splunk and New Relic take all of this information and mine it for useful insights. You've got the payment and finance pioneers like PayPal, SoFi. You've got amazing things being done with semiconductors. And to make those chips, you need super expensive equipment, think applied materials. Meanwhile, Intel is transforming the brains of the personal computer, not to mention working its way into the heart of the data center and autonomous vehicles. Even HP Inc. is making a comeback thanks to the resurgence of the PC. Twitter has allowed the president to cut out the media middleman and directly connect with millions of people at once while, say, uh, firing a secretary of state in an incredibly insulting way. And now that so much of our lives are conducted online, we need to keep our data extra safe, as well as our Bitcoins, which is exactly what FireEye and the other cybersecurity plays are all about. That's a lot to keep track of. So every few months I go to San Francisco. I think of it as paying homage to the greatest innovators of our time. You can't just interview them all by satellite. You actually need to press the flesh, so to speak, in order to earn their trust. I like all the tech stocks I just mentioned, the non-FANG tech names that are working here. I think Intel's the cheapest, but they all look good to me. That said, of all the innovative companies I talked to in San Francisco, you know which one I'm most fascinated by? The one that's not even a technology stock. Clorox. Yep, I regard Clorox, the consumer products company, as a stealth tech play. And I like the company a great deal, even as the stock needs to come down a little more before I pound the table for you. Granted, all the obvious tech names I mentioned have tremendous growth driven by powerful customer demand. In many cases, they're growing at a double-digit clip. Clorox is trying to scratch out two percent growth, which actually puts it in the more elite portion of a stagnant cohort. Geez, how am I even mentioning Clorox in the same breath as these new tech kingpins? Simple. This maker of Glad bags, Kingsford charcoal, Fresh Step cat litter has been backed into a corner. For Clorox, it's innovate or die. CEO Ben Odor needs to develop new products or else his stock will go so low that the company may end up getting it acquired by a larger competitor for a fraction of what it could be worth. So what does Dora do? He comes up with new line extensions for the company's natural organic divisions, like the lipstick from Birch Bees or new wipes from old Clorox brand that kills germs better than any other substance made by man. He buys health and wellness supplements and stretches them from a foot per drugstore to more like a yard Store. Thanks again to line extensions, new products via startling innovation. And to get the word out to the next generation of consumers, what did he do? He puts half of his advertising budget online. That's where the readers are. Clorox may look like one of the most boring businesses known to man, but it's an innovation machine. So what do you do with the stock down 22 points from its high sporting 3% yield? As much as I like the company There's no denying that the consumer staples are very much out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show right now, and that goes double for Clorox, as the latest quarter was suboptimal, to say the least. I think the stock could keep drifting lower until we see the next quarter. If you're impatient, stick with the technology names I mentioned earlier. However, for those of you who love innovation but fear the volatility of tech, Clorox is exactly the kind of stock that could be worth buying slowly and patiently into expected weakness, as this market is no longer willing to give the consumer product stocks the benefit of the doubt. Stick with Craig. All right, among all the tech names, the disappointing one was Broadcom. A lot of people were asking me, do you panic and sell Broadcom? I must tell you, it's an inexpensive stock. I think the problem was the holders. There were so many people who must have thought that they were actually going to get Qualcomm. They dumped it wholesale. But the quarter itself, it wasn't bad. It was okay. I like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise. Try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday.